Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, And once again, we're here with the famous Michael Smith. So Michael, what happened last week that we need to know? Well, uh, Wayne, we've got a lot of interesting things that happened last week. Let me start with the Eastern District. We've got a couple of interesting opinions out of there. We had the uh, J-Malls in the Solis versus Samsung litigation. And as readers of my blog know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Rule 50 motions because it's the best way to see all the issues that come up in a case and what matters and what the standards are. Uh, and in that case, Judge Gilstrap was passing on the J-Malls in a case that resulted in a $62 million verdict against Samsung back in March. Now, he denied all the issues and also denied the defendant's motion for new trial. But again, that's a really helpful opinion to know the, the, the sorts of issues that come up in a case and uh, what courts do with it. You sell that opinion a little bit short. It's, it's a long opinion that really is, if you're a newer attorney or just want a good set of lessons on, on J-Mall practice, that opinion really seemed to, to be helpful. So that's one I'd recommend people take a look at. It really is. And because it discusses all the issues, it explains what happened at trial. And now the complaint is that there wasn't sufficient evidence uh, to support that uh, a reasonable jury couldn't have decided the way that it did. Well, here's the evidence. And yes, there was sufficient evidence from which they could do that. I'm uh, Jay Malls, I find I've kind of got Jay Malls on the brain this month from our trial a couple of weeks ago because I was trying to herd those for the 50A motion at the end of the evidence. And a lot of times people just don't, don't realize the significance procedurally of it. But at the back end of the JMAL procedure, you get this great opinion that tells you so much about what goes on during trial. Michael, there's another case out of the Eastern District that I gotta tell you, I, I was smiling as I read this. You absolutely have to lose this, but this is the most creative, entertaining argument I have seen in a while. You know, kudos to you for creativity and making me smile. Um, you want to give us the background on that Lyft case? Yeah, the, uh, it, this is an improper venue case that Magistrate Judge Payne here in Marshall ruled on. And in that case, what he was looking at is uh, the plaintiff was saying venues proper in the Eastern District uh, in a case against Lyft. And they had three different arguments for why venue was appropriate. And he went through each one and said, okay, argument one doesn't work because that's not a regular place of business. Argument two doesn't work. And this was the one that I thought was interesting. The argument was that, well, they've got cars and cars are a regular and established place of business. And he said, well, looking carefully at what the court said in N. Ray Cray, yes, it's a physical place, but it's transient, not established. And then he found out that pickup, found that pickup locations weren't either. Well, I was talking about this case with my wife last night, and I said, here's the problem. What if it's a case that involves food trucks? What if the defendant's company is running around the district with food trucks, and you say, that's your, your place of business? Well, it is. That's your regular and established place of business. It's even physical, but it's not fixed. Well, the fixed language is not in the statute. It's in Cray. So I'm really curious what's going to happen when the defendant is operating out of mobile locations. Are they going to do what Judge Payne did here, which, again, made sense under the facts of this case, 
but or are they going to go with something else? But uh, again, a, a creative uh, improper venue argument in uh, this case, but it it didn't end up going anywhere, pun intended. So the next case that made me smile was one out of the the Northern District of Texas. Um, I think uh, you said it best with "Don't be this guy." <laughs> that was the thing I liked about it because you and I both like to find like to tell lawyers, don't be this guy, don't act this way. There's a reason why, even though this course is available under the rules, you don't go this way. And in this case, you had a uh, response to a TRO request in a copyright case. And instead of engaging on the merits of the case, what the party was doing was saying, well, this expert was, wasn't sufficiently disclosed. It was too late. And he was avoiding trying to work the case out. He just wanted to complain about all this. So the judge uh, uses a quote from a T.S. Eliot poem that I, I'm ashamed to, to say I'd never heard of that refers to a hundred briefs to needless motions. And I mean, just trying to point out, look, you really ought to be focusing on the merits and not the litigation tactics. It's easy for us on this side of the bar to, to think in terms of our client winning but you have to keep in mind, I tell people, that the judge isn't interested in who's winning. Uh, the judge is interested in the presentation of the merits. And when you're trying to block the merits for tactical benefit, don't do that at the beginning of a case. There's, there's lots of time uh, to develop the facts. Don't try to uh, sideline the merits of the case at the beginning. I thought this this case is good reading for for newer attorneys to the practice that are maybe still a little little focused on the rules rather than uh, the end justice result. Um, worth fifteen minutes to to get a good grounding in what what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And that's one one reason why I tell young lawyers if you have a chance to clerk for a trial court judge, do it because you it really helps to understand that while you may be focused on your arguments and your side of the case, the court's actually focused on something else. And it's good to learn at the beginning of your career, here's the, here's the prism through which the person making the decisions in your case views things. Well, Michael, you picked one, one other case that I had a phrase in here that I never thought I'd see in a federal case. You know, the defendant's ordered to say off his mother's computer. Uh, what? what how do you get that? What I, I, I have no idea what was going on in that, but this order pops out after a motions hearing and Judge Eskridge is saying, okay, uh, do this, do this, do this, uh, give the computer back to the mother, but do not get on your mother's computer during the rest of the case. Leave it alone. And I was just thinking, it is kind of interesting to think about the, the fun situations. I, I can't tell if Judge Eskridge found that entertaining or whether he found it irritating, but, but it, it was kind of a reminder to me of the pragmatic nature of this. We talk about the law and we talk about uh, products and things, but cases are made up of people and people have motivations. And sometimes we forget that our clients are looking at things from a different point of view and they think that the shortest route from is from a to b and you have to explain to them no we're in litigation you can't go from a to b we have to go from a to c and sit over there until we get permission to come back to b so i, I just thought that was an entertaining uh, little opinion from judge eskridge well it, it's a good reminder of all the things that uh, judges are having to deal with in the background that aren't related to your case 
I love your emphasis. It's about people sometimes more than just the, the procedures. Realizing what else the judge is dealing with is important. I had a situation three or four weeks ago where we had someone that was very agitated that a PROHAC VCHE application hadn't been granted by a court. And they asked us to call over and see what the status of that was. And we called over and the, and the, and the court staff patiently explained, well, the judge is kind of busy today. We'll see if we can get that out this afternoon. That was the judge who that day was conducting the hearing in Austin on the constitutionality of the Texas heartbeat abortion bill. So he was a little busy that day, and we still got the order out of chambers uh, around mid-afternoon, but that was a good example of, you know, you're not the only thing going on in chambers on a given day, and it's always good not to call over and think that you're the only case they're working on. Well, as we, we turn to the Western District, uh, we got a verdict in the video share. Yesterday afternoon, a Waco jury in the video share case against Google and YouTube uh, awarded $25.9 million and found all the claims not invalid. I've only seen parts of the verdict form so far. Uh, I understand there's a bench trial on 101 that will follow, but I'm not exactly sure how that, how that fits in uh, with everything. After I studied the uh, verdict, I may have a better feel on it, but that's one more verdict uh, out of Waco. I think they're, they're cranking out verdicts down there every, every couple of weeks for the last month or so. Well, there was a, another ruling that I thought was really interesting, uh, and that, those were the, the set of pretrial rulings that came out from, from Judge Albright. The interesting thing about this set of pretrial rulings, there was one order here, and then uh, uh, there were a couple of separate orders, and I want to explain why this is important. Early on in his tenure, Judge Albright didn't have that many cases that got to the end of the road. We had the pandemic start up, so you didn't get pretrial rulings out of him. And when you did get pretrial rulings, a lot of times there wouldn't be uh, written orders immediately. And then if a case settled, you, you'd never see a written order. You knew, the, you knew what the ruling was, but you didn't have the basis for it. The interesting thing about this is, and this was in the, the cloud of change case that Judge Albright tried I think late last month or, or possibly beginning of this month, he has three days of pretrial conferences. He issues an order with a bunch of rulings, rules on a bunch of expert issues. And the great thing about this is he then puts out separate orders on two of the experts that explains the, the rationale and the basis for what he was doing. Uh, for example, he lined out the plaintiff's technical experts apportionment analysis. And in the opinion puts in, okay, Here's what the plaintiff's expert said about apportionment. It's just one paragraph. I agree with the defendants. This is conclusory. This is insufficient to express that opinion. Well, I've seen that before from Judge Albright in a pretrial conference, but because the case settled right after that, we didn't get the written order. So I can tell people, here's what the judge thinks about uh, opinions that are that are that are of this size and and support but I didn't have anything to point to. Well, now we've got a couple of opinions we can point to. He goes through, says which opinions come in, which opinions go out. He goes through a large number of motions in limine. Most are granted, but that's very helpful that now I've got another motion in limine where I can say, look, opposing counsel, the judge usually grants a motion in limine on this. So let's agree we're not going to go into this without approaching. So it's one of those things where it helps tell lawyers outside the case what rulings you're likely to get given a certain set of facts and means that you don't have to fight that fight again because the judge has already given you an indication where he is on that. 
the judge also has some opinions here on apportionment, basically a damages approach, both plaintiff side and defense side. I hadn't seen anything quite like those either. One thing I tell people about Judge Albright is he tends to see things in in terms of expert reports. You go to him at a Markman hearing and you say, and you basically tell him, you know, Judge, I really would like you to grant summary judgment by finding this term means this. And he tends to tell people, no, 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 we're not there yet. Take the constructions, go write your expert reports, and then tell, and then we'll see whether the expert reports, he, he seems in my experience to be more um, attuned to trimming a case through limiting expert testimony than through summary judgment motions. But you won't see that until the pretrial conference. So the fact that he's got cases that are being tried now that are coming up to pretrial conferences, we're starting to get orders like this that are helping parties see here's what he's requiring out of people. And if you're paying attention to the rulings, you notice these are not rulings that are going plaintiff's way in a lot of uh, instances. Uh, in the final Rod case, he struck a plaintiff's damages expert. That went up to the federal circuit. And uh, again, you see trimming down here on both sides. But at that point, it's a little late to do anything. So it's very helpful to have these orders to go back and go to your client, go to your expert and say, okay, when you get to this opinion, I need you to provide more of a basis. I need you to explain your opinion more than simply say, hey, I've been doing this for 30 years and I think 27% is the right way to go. Yeah, I think it's a, it's probably always a good rule that a, a single paragraph apportionment calculation is not gonna, not gonna fly. It may depend what judge you're in front of, but if you're gonna be in front of Albright, it generally doesn't. What I used to do is send people copies of the, the final rod pretrial transcript, because what he would do is he'd say, hand up the report, he'd read the report, and he'd, he'd have the discussion with the lawyers at the pretrial conference on the record, and you could read that, and you could see right where the case was going off the edge of the earth, where he was like, there, there's this, this is all you've got? Is this all you've got? What other paragraph talks about this? You can see the process of how the court is deciding the issue, and that helps you in future cases, because I can read that and tell I do not want to be in a position where I have to say, um, yes, Your Honor, that's the only paragraph where our expert talks about this. It tells me the additional meat that I need to get into my report. Well, I wanted to, to move out of the patent world to the world of uh, 70s music. You've got the, the Ohio Players case. I have to, to say I, I needed to search my mind a, a little bit to actually figure out which songs they, they had, but um, uh, with the help of modern technology, I ran those down. But the, the real issue is not my, my lack of 70s knowledge, but uh, Rule 56. So this seems to be a really good case dealing with Rule 56. This is a case that deals with a, uh, a copyright case where the, the issue is who owns a certain segment of the royalties for the band's music. And I, I've, I've posted on several orders from this case, but the interesting thing about this one, the court granted summary judgment and resolved the issues in advance of trial here, but there were some complaints about how the court did it. Uh, there was a complaint to the timing of the court's consideration of the summary judgment issue, which was on pretty short notice. And while the plaintiff ended up withdrawing that complaint, the court went ahead and explained, well, here's why it was fair for me to decide the case on this notice under these facts based on what had happened previously 
Well, I'd never seen that come up before. So I thought that was interesting. And then the judge also went into rule 56 G, which allows the court to treat certain facts as not genuinely in dispute. And the court issued a 56 G order after the summary judgment ruling, which is a little unusual, but it explained it's not unusual in this case because the court had already resolved those facts. So I understand it's disputed, but I've already resolved that I've made rulings that there's no reasonable basis for the dispute in this case. There's also some, some uh, findings about an injunction and a little bit of Rooker Feldman analysis. So it's just one of those opinions that uh, explores a few issues, a few corners of uh, summary judgment practice that you don't see very often. Well, no week in Texas, especially the Western District, can be passed by without a little discussion of venue. And this actually seems to be a really, really interesting week. So you want to walk us through what we need to know on venue? Yeah, we had, of course, uh, Monday was Mandamus Monday at the Federal Circuit. Venue Mandamus is transferring cases from uh, Google and Apple and some others. But there was one other opinion there that ties into a couple of recent uh, amended orders that Judge uh, Albright has put out. So I want to kind of explain these two orders. In the last couple of weeks, Judge Albright has issued a couple of orders where he reconsidered previous orders denying motions to transfer based on additional guidance received from the Federal Circuit. The Federal Circuit says, don't do this, do this, uh, consider this, give this less weight. So he said, okay, I'm going to go back and do that in a couple of cases. On the first case, which was a Google case, he went back and reversed his er earlier denial of a Google case and explained, I am now finding that it's clearly more convenient in the transferee court, so I'm going to transfer it, and here's why. Here are the, the changes I'm making. And the language in that opinion is um, pretty interesting. He talks about the 100-mile rule, and he um, says that as he reads it, the Fifth Circuit is kind of only following that when it wants to, and in other cases it doesn't. And uh, so there's some very interesting language there where he points out how it's difficult from his perspective to understand how to apply that rule because he gets different guidance from the court. He talks about party witnesses next, and he recognizes that the federal circuit has told him that uh, he is not according as much weight to the convenience of party witnesses. So he goes through and he explains why he was doing that, where that came from cases in the Fifth Circuit, but he says, now I'm following what the Federal Circuit says, so I'm according more weight to party witnesses, so that's different than, than the original order. Third party witnesses. Uh, again, he points out the Federal Circuit has told me that I can't use my experience and say, look, prior art witnesses don't testify in patent cases. Um, all these, these third-party fact witnesses are highly unlikely to all testify. Only a few will testify. Therefore, that's, I give that less weight. But I recognize that the Federal Circuit has told me that I can't do that without making case-specific findings as to why they won't. So I'm changing the weight of court under that. And that weighed in favor of transfer. He talked about availability of compulsory process. He talked about court congestion and explains how he's changing the weight given to the factors based on what the federal circuit says. On the court congestion, he recognizes that he's been told you are to give this less weight. So he says, I'm now giving that less weight. So then in conclusion, he looks at all the factors and says, okay, now 
the factors weigh uh, in favor of transfer because the transfer court is clearly more convenient. Okay, so that's one, one opinion down. I promise I'll be quicker on the second one, but this one's more interesting anyway. In the second case, he revised the order in response to recent federal circuit decisions similar to what I just talked about. Okay, 100 mile rule, here's what I do on that. Witnesses, here's what I do on that. Compulsory process, here's what I do on that. And it changes the weighting. And under the weighting now, the transferee court is clearly more convenient. But I'm not going to transfer the case because there's the defendant has not met the threshold showing that uh, personal jurisdiction is proper in the transferee court. That's the first thing you have to show, judge, the, the court you want to go to, personal jurisdiction is proper. And in this case, the defendant was saying, well, I don't, I don't know that we aren't going to say that it isn't. So he held that since you have failed to satisfy that threshold issue, the motion would be denied. But wait, this is where it gets interesting. After Judge Albright puts out that opinion, the case is pending on mandamus and the defendant drops the mandamus. They tell the, the federal circuit that uh, it believes mandamus release, relief is no longer necessary. And the federal circuit dismisses the mandamus. But something I haven't seen before, one of the judges on the panel concurred in the result, but wrote a separate four page opinion to note what he called incongruous findings on jurisdiction in the district court's order. And what Judge Hughes said was that the original order didn't say that jurisdiction was an obstacle to transfer, but the new order does. And he pointed out that in a prior opinion in the case that, that I assume he found looking at the docket, uh, Judge Albright had found that personal jurisdiction was appropriate in Texas. So Judge Hughes said, well, it seems like that would apply equally to California. So he notes that, well, the, in its motion withdrawing the mandamus petition, the defendant told the court that it intends to seek reconsideration of the amended order and says, and I'm quoting, I trust that the district court will fully explain the incongruous findings on jurisdiction in its new order. Well, I don't know what to call it when a member of a panel in a proceeding that's been dismissed is reading a district court's orders that aren't at issue about an issue that's not at issue and directing the judge to provide analysis of that issue in an order resolving a motion that hasn't been filed yet. I mean, we've already seen mandamus light uh, is a term that one federal circuit judge used to explain one opinion. I don't know whether to call this dicta light or if it's a judge's amicus brief to the lawyers. I don't know what to call this, but it's something I've never seen before. Well, it seems like a pure advisory opinion. There was nothing for the court to rule on, and yet the, the judge decided to write anyway about how the court could have decided had it actually not been withdrawn. And he's, he's not even talking about the, what the mandamus had been filed on. He's talking about subsequent orders that weren't at issue, orders that weren't at issue in the mandamus proceeding, and he's now saying, here's what the judge needs to do after a party files a certain motion He's not saying there's there's anything wrong with the um, what the judge did. He's saying it's there's an incongruity between what you said in the first opinion and what you said in the amended opinion. Well, that's very interesting, Your Honor. But all I'm interested in is is it correct under the law and did it meet the standard for mandamus? And if it doesn't meet this, if it's if there's not a pending case or controversy, why am I reading what a judge is writing about a case? It's a perplexing document to me because, as you said, it's, it's, it's a purely advisory opinion, 
it's dicta in a case that's not even pending. I, I don't I don't know how to characterize this, but it's it's not the the closest thing I can come up with is that it's an amicus brief by a judge to a lawyer instead of by lawyers to a judges. I, I'd be very interested to see if the plaintiff, because clearly this is going to go back up on mandamus, and when it goes back up on mandamus, presumably it would be to the same panel. I'm very interested to see whether the judge is going to be asked to recuse based on these extrajudicial comments about the case. When you look at this, plus what's going on at the federal circuit overall, they seem to have a, a real ax to grind with, with Judge Albright, and they may be going too far to, to grind that ax. Oh, I, th I, think th I think there's no question that th this is going too far, that this is something I've never seen. I've only been doing this for 28, no, 29 years, but I've never seen uh, an appellate judge issuing basically audits of a district judge's rulings in a case talking about, well, this seems incongruous with this, and if this is this and whatever, if you want to do an op-ed on the case, I guess you could do that, um, but that's what this really is. It just doesn't seem to be appropriate to me, and it seems to undermine the impression that we should have, which is that the appellate court is following the applicable standards and reviewing what's brought before it under the standards that the law sets forth. This is a completely extrajudicial uh, comment on the case, and it is troubling. Well, I'll leave it with it. It seems that the, the doctrine of judicial restraint doesn't apply to the federal circuit's review of Judge Albright's opinions these days. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's a pretty safe. There's not a lot of restraint there, um, but I think that's a fair statement. Well, we'll see uh, if they can show less restraint even next week. Uh, every every Monday's fun. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to Mandamus Monday next week and see what happens. Well, I, I'm sure everybody except Judge Albright looks forward to Mandamus Monday. Well, Michael, once again, thank you, and we'll talk next week. All right. Look forward to it.